Good morning. Will you pray with me? Let us begin this Lord's Day by asking him to meet us here. Dearest Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit to quiet our hearts and you, gracious Father, to mend and remove from our hearts and minds yesterday's hurts, distractions, and doubts. You, Lord, are our hope, the only hope of the world, eternal, unchanging, risen. Lord, we come to you this hour with thankfulness and praise for all your many blessings. On the eve of this Memorial Day, we thank you for the brave men and women who have fought so courageously for our nation. We humbly remember that Jesus told us, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And he did it. He called us his friends, and he gave his life for us. We're grateful for those who answered the nation's call to protect and defend their fellow citizens and families, and many, in doing so, gave their lives. There are those who continue to stand ready to defend and fight. We ask your covering and blessing on them and their families. We pray that you would be gracious and provide them with your wisdom and encircle them with your peace. We pray for your great favor and goodness to be evident in their lives. We ask that you would draw them to yourself amidst the dangers they face in a dark world. For you are the truth, you are the way, and you are the light. We pray, Lord, that you bring your kingdom near to all places of injustice, oppression, oppression, and darkness in our souls and in our world. We continue to pray for those in Ukraine, Russia, and Eastern Europe that your light may shine brightly. And we pray for the families and community of Uvalde, Texas, as they experience in a profound and personal way that they may experience in a profound and personal way, your deep abiding love and peace. Root out anything in us that does not reflect you in our lives. Let us be instruments of your peace. Lord, we come to you this hour to uphold our brothers and sisters who are in physical pain, mental anguish, or grief. We ask that all who grieve are held in the healing presence of the risen Christ, receiving his comfort and the peace that passes all understanding. We ask for comfort for the Hersbergers on the loss of their friend, Lowell Glick. We ask for peace for the Eilers family as they remember Dave's birthday today, but also gather for the funeral of their nephew. <clears throat> we ask for all, any of those who are experiencing the pain of separation from loved ones. We ask for healing for Dave Bell, Dave's sister Bev, and Sharon Mallison. We pray for continued healing from those who are recovering from medical procedures. Roy, Jeff, Sandy, and in birthing Molly for the birth of Lucy. We also give you thanks for Rita as she birthed her son Greg a few years ago. We pray for those who have a family and friends who are far from Christ, that your spirit would ignite a holy fire in those hearts and give strength and peace to those who love them. Lord, we come to you in this season of rest, asking you for safety as we travel, explore, and play in this beautiful world you've created for us. We ask specific mercies for Pastor Matt, Carrie, and their children, that they will return refreshed and invigorated from time as a family, as a couple, and as our shepherd. We thank you for those who faithfully lead us during this time as well. Lord, we come to you in grateful thanksgiving and praise for the freedom you have given us, 
for the price that was paid by Christ so that we could live free. We remember today the cost of it all, the great sacrifice for freedom. Lord, may we reflect your Calvary love and be filled with your resurrection faith. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. And now, um, if the children would meet with Addie and me, the ones that are age four through kindergarten, we'll head to Children's Church. Thank you. Good morning. We're continuing our study in the book of Colossians today, so if you have a Bible, you can uh, open to Colossians. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of in uh, in front of the chair in front of you. Have you ever been in awe of something? I mean, just truly overwhelmed by an idea or an image, and something you see just takes your breath away. You have no, um, no way to describe the feelings that you're feeling, and you have nothing but to stand slack-jawed in wonder of it all. It might be that perfect sunrise that comes up over the lake in the morning, or holding that newborn baby against your chest. It might be the perfect ping of that, of that uh, golf ball going straight and far, or diving deep off the diving board and coming back up uh, to a breath of fresh air. There are moments that just take your breath away. And so often these moments are so simple and yet so magnificent. Uh, no one had to paint the sky that morning to make that beautiful sunrise. Um, no one planned and orchestrated that moment with that newborn baby. Any golfer knows the miracle of a straight flying golf ball is about as unplanned as it gets. There are simple moments simple mysterious moments that make us stand in awe this morning as we study the book of colossians 1 15 through 2 5 paul invites us to stand in awe to take in the simple mystery of the person and work of jesus christ it's my hope in the next few minutes that we have together that i will get out of the way as much as possible and you will stand in awe at the magnificent mystery of Jesus Christ in you. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we have this time set aside once a week to come together to worship you. And may we stand in awe of Jesus Christ, your son you sent to earth as a human to live and die and rise again to save us from our sins. I pray, God, that today we would be encountered with the risen Lord. We would stand in awe of him and see how he is holding the universe together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we're in Colossians 1, 15 through 2, 5. Uh, Pastor Eugene Peterson wrote a commentary and translation of the Bible for his congregants that became the message. Over the 30 years since its publication, it's come with some mixed reviews from Christians. But let me read to you the foreword of the translation that Peterson says this way. While I was teaching a class on Galatians, I began to realize that the adults in my class weren't feeling the vitality and directness that I sensed as I read and studied the New Testament in its original Greek. 
Writing straight from the original text, I began to attempt to bring into English the rhythms and idioms of the original language. I knew that the early readers of the New Testament were captured and engaged by these writings, and I wanted my congregation to be impacted in the same way. I hope to bring the New Testament to life for two different types of people, those who haven't read the Bible because it seemed too distant and irrelevant, and those who had read the Bible so much that it had become old hat. I especially like this translation um, of the message, uh, and I've especially I like it when I've read the same passage multiple times uh, or when I'm just very accustomed to it because I can hear it with fresh ears. Now, I don't use the message for my daily kind of digging into the Word, um, but more for reading broadly, reading generally large amounts of Scripture, which I encourage you to do. If you find that reading the Bible is too tedious because the words are hard, Use a translation like the message that um, makes it just more readable, more uh, understandable, so that you can read large portions of, of Scripture. But I especially like the, the message for um, these verses this morning, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Maybe as I read this version from the message, it will give you some new ears to hear. Listen to verses 15 through 20. We look at this sun and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created, for everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything God started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning. And leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he so expansive that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all of the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant har harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. Sit in awe of this amazing Jesus. Here's how Max Licato describes Jesus, another poet. Need proof of who Jesus was? Midwifed by a carpenter, bathed by a peasant girl, the maker of the world with a belly button, the author of the Torah being taught the Torah. Heaven's human. And because he was, we are left with, scratch your head, double blink, what's wrong with this picture? moments like these bordeaux instead of h2o a cripple sponsoring the town dance a sack lunch that feeds five thousand tummies and most of all a grave guarded by soldiers sealed by a rock yet vacated by a three days dead man what do we do with such a person we applaud men for doing good things we enshrine god for doing great things but what do we do when a man does god things one thing is certain, we can't ignore him. Why would we want to? 
If these moments are factual, if the claims of Christ is actual, then he was at once man and God. There he was, the single most significant person who ever lived. Forget MVP, he's the entire league. The head of the parade, hardly. No one even shares the street. Who can come close? Humanity's best and brightest they like dime store rubies next to him. Now I picked, picked Eugene Peterson and Max Licato because these two men in my mind represent a certain poetry in evangelical Christianity that sometimes gets missed. Sometimes we are a bit heady. And hearing from these kind of men that speak poetically, that speak to feelings, is a, a breath of fresh air. The fundamentalism that I was influenced by as a young man and into seminary tends to frown on these poetic license. But Colossians, you cannot get more grandiose than the book of Colossians and its view of Jesus. It's not a book of precepts to master. It's a love poem to the amazing God-man Jesus. Sit in awe of this amazing God. What do you hear in these words about Jesus in the book of Colossians? Here's a few things I picked out. Jesus is the visible view of the invisible God. Jesus is the model for creation. Jesus is the source of all creation in the universe. Jesus is the reason for all of creation. Jesus has the place of preeminence in the church. Jesus is the beginning of life and death. Jesus is fully God and the reconciler of God to creation. And Jesus did this all at the cross. Jesus, what a beautiful name. Son of God, Son of Man, Lamb that was slain. Joy and peace, strength and hope, the maker of the universe. Sometimes you're just so overwhelmed by Jesus and who he is that you can do nothing but sing. There's a reason that we are overwhelmed by uh, this sense of Jesus in this passage from Paul. Uh, because he's writing as a poet of who this amazing God-man is. He stands wide-eyed in wonder at the Savior of the world and you can't help but sing. We're commanded to sing in the Bible more than anything else, except for maybe fear. And it's interesting that usually when I'm afraid, I like to sing. Maybe you do too. Most scholars believe actually this passage, and the reason that we were singing, is because this passage is a song, at least the first few verses, 15 through 20, 
is either a poem that Paul wrote um, for his congregants here, or one that he was quoting that they knew well, and perhaps a hymn of the time. The thrust of the song is this, the same power that created the world at the beginning, both visible and invisible, is the same power that is creating anew the kingdom of God in the lives of the believers in the church. The same power that created is the same power that is bringing anew the lives of the people in the church. Everything was created by and for the Son, the image of God. Jesus isn't just the guest star, he is the star of the show. He is before everything. He is above everything. He holds everything together. I I imagine sometimes Jesus as holding strands in his hands, holding the universe, every molecule, every quark together. Uh, It reminds me of Hebrews 1.1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And this universe creator and sustainer, who's above all things, is also the head of the church, who is the new creation. The universal church is brought right down to the people of Colossae in this song and also to us. In fact, the church is not just connected to Jesus, but is his body and he's the head, the passage says. Now, in no way does this deny the actual physicality of Jesus, that Jesus literally did live, die, and rise from the dead. But it metaphorically includes us in the work of Jesus holding the universe together. We're in there too. We not only know God, but we also know humanity through the Son of God, Jesus. In his commentary, N.T. Wright says, Indeed, it is only in Jesus Christ that we understand what divinity and humanity really mean. Without him, we lapse into sub-Christian or even pagan categories of thought. And that work is done through the blood of the cross. That's the intersection of the divine and the human in all its wonderful mystery. Jesus, the God-man, paid the price for sin with his own physical human blood. Because the payment must have been made by a human. But because it was the blood of the God-man, the perfect sacrifice, the payment was sufficient to reconcile the whole world, whether in heaven or earth. There is peace. There is peace in the blood of the cross. Such irony that this violent act of state-sponsored torture used to dehumanize the political prisoner in ancient Rome and display the superiority of the state was the very thing that was going to be used to break the bondage of governmental power. That, could only, that government could only promise the, the peace of Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, by brutal force. But the cross, Jesus promises Pax Domini, the peace of God, real peace by faith in his death. Paul takes this cosmic Jesus, this song of Jesus' supremacy, 
and applies it now in verses 21 through 23. Back to the NIV for verses 21 through 23. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. We were once alienated from God. The Net Bible translates it that we were strangers. Have you ever had that experience of being a stranger in a, a new place? You're alone in a room full of people that don't know you and you don't know them. Maybe church was a place for you one time like that. You're at a party and the guest of honor doesn't know who you are. You feel small and out of place. Or maybe you're at a new school. Everyone has friends and you have none. Have you ever felt like that, being a stranger? That's what we were to God. We were locked out. We were alone. We were strangers to God. What's worse, we weren't only strangers to God, but we were in fact enemies of God in our own minds. Now this doesn't describe God's hostility towards us, but our hostility towards God. We were in rebellion against God. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. That was us. Our alienation separated us from a relationship with God. But our rebellion in our own thinking actually put us at odds with God. And this was shown in our evil behavior. Our rebellion against God was shown in our evil behavior. I think the NIV doesn't quite get, capture this right when it uses the word because in verse 21. We weren't enemies because we were evil. We were enemies. And you could tell we were enemies because we were evil. That was demonstrating our evilness, our evil behavior. So we have this two-pronged sin problem. First, we have original sin, the sin that we inherit from Adam that has separated us from God. We're alienated. We're away. We're distant. Adam was our representative in the garden, and instead of listening to God, he disobeyed God. Adam rebelled against God and was cast out of God's presence, and because he was our representative, we are cast out of God's presence as well. But we also have the second prong of our own sin. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And each of us prove that we're in the line of Adam by sinning ourselves. So we are alienated from God with original sin, and we are enemies of God because of our own performed sin. But now Paul says in verse 22, we've been, we have been alien, alienated and enemies, but now we are reconciled. Reconciled takes a relationship that's broken and brings it together. It is bringing back together what was once apart. Jesus did this in his physical body. Paul wants us to make this connection that Jesus, who was God himself, didn't just become a man, he became flesh, he became physical so he could reconcile us to God and present us to God reconciled. And the reconciliation that Jesus gave us through his sacrifice, had a purpose. He made us whole with God. 
so that we could come before God blameless, holy, and free. And he writes says this, God's purpose then is to create a holy people in Christ. This he has done in principle by dealing with sin on the cross and thus already achieving reconciliation. This he is doing in practice by refashioning their lives according to the pattern of the perfect life, that of Christ. This he will do in the future when that work is complete and the church enjoys fully that which at present it awaits in hope. There's a beautiful scene in the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, George Clooney's character, Ulysses, has escaped prison with two other people, and they're on the run. He's been rejecting every spiritual reality throughout this journey. He keeps going back to reason and, and says that all of the things that are happening around him, these spiritual things are nonsense, even though the two that he ran away with are very acute to uh, the spiritual things that are happening. In one of the last scenes, he and the Soggy Bottom Boys had sung their hit song, and a huge crowd is there, the governor is there, and because of their popularity, the governor decides to pardon the three runaways so that they can promote him for re-election. And now they're free. But in the next scene, there's the sheriff that finds them out in the wilderness, the sheriff that has been hunting them down since the day they ran away from prison. And he finally finds them with nooses hanging from the tree, ready to hang them. With the noose over his neck, Ulysses gets down on his knees and finally acknowledges God and begs for forgiveness for all that he's done. As they're just about to be hung, the dam that had been holding back the river to create the reservoir that would now be there breaks and water floods in and rescues these three uh, men and washes away the evil sheriff. Ulysses has finally been reconciled uh, to God. He was reconciled to the, by the governor with a pardon, but it wasn't until he got on his knees and acknowledged God that he was truly forgiven and truly free. There was a statement of legality by the governor, but there was true freedom when God saved him. It was an act of God. There's a kind of cheap grace that we have in evangelicalism. It says, pray this prayer and you get out of, free, get out of hell free. Uh, it's cheap because it doesn't actually seem to produce anything. That's what the governor offered to Ulysses. Freedom, but it, it didn't produce any change in his life, any change in behavior. It was just a means to an end. But what God offers is true reconciliation by means of his son. His son that is holy and so gives us holiness, is blameless, so he gives us blamelessness, is free, so he gives us freedom. It's a transformation of life that is not simply a change in status, but a change down to the core. Jesus doesn't want to just save you from hell. He wants to present you to God. He declares you holy at the cross. He's making us holy. He made us holy by, he made, he made us holy, defend, declared us holy at the cross. He's making us holy through our lives because of his work on the cross. And Paul says, for those that continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not 
move from the hope held out in the gospel, he will complete the reconciliation in the end. All three of those aspects come from one sacrifice of the Son. It's not three different events. It's one event, the cross. The cross declared us holy. The cross is making us holy. The cross, that event, will complete its work when we are in heaven, one event working itself out in the individual Christian's life. But it has multiple ramifications. One does not get pardoned by the cross and then work out reconciliation. No, not at all. The power of the gospel that Paul proclaimed does all of the work. We are exhorted to hold on to the gospel that he has proclaimed. Paul calls himself a servant of the gospel in verse 23. He continues in verse 24 to describe his place, uh, his place in their lives. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Paul wants to participate in their lives. Even these people that he hasn't met in person. Paul, even after death, still carries out this mission in our lives. His work of the gospel continues to impact generations to know the wonderful work of Jesus. But there, tucked away in verse 27, is the crux of what I think is the whole book and really of the entire ministry of the Apostle Paul. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the part of the gospel message that's brand new. Reconciliation has always been a part of God's plan. There has always been, through the law, a way to be right with God. There's even been the hope of a Messiah. You can see that all the way back, some say even back to Genesis who will give his life for the sins of the world. But this is the new thing. It's not just for the Jews. It's that the gospel is taken throughout the whole world. Christ in you. Who is the you that Paul is talking about there? The you are the Colossians, Gentiles. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I imagine most of us are Gentiles of one stripe or another here. This message is you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery that has now been revealed. That's the gospel that Paul has suffered for, the effects of the gospel, that he's taken to the world, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We saw in our study of Hebrews in chapter 11, all of those heroes of the faith, you remember that hall of faith that we went through? They were still waiting 
Hebrews 11, 39 and 40 says, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. This is the better plan. The lost sheep are brought in, the whole world reconciled to God, not based on family heritage, but on incorporation into Christ's body and Him indwelling you. Paul wants to present us all mature. It's the Greek word teleos, which usually is translated perfect or complete. The fullness of the mystery of Christ, the hope of glory, is what is needed for completeness. It's not just the beginning of the knowledge of Christ, it's everything. If you're looking for some other mystery to equip you for the life of following Christ, there is nowhere else to look. There is no other mystery to understand. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, the people of Colossae were surrounded by a culture that loved the mysterious. I think that's why Paul talks so much about mystery here, because their culture loved the mysteries. They were always looking for the secret knowledge of the sages. Ancient Colossae doesn't sound all that different from modern America, does it? People looking for that next mystery. Every few years, there's some guru that makes their way to the forefront of popular culture, the next Oprah, usually promising some great experience for those that follow the secret, and it happens to be in their latest book. It's only available to the select and special who are truly devoted, and then every few years they simply fade away because it wasn't all that miraculous at all. The irrelevance of their mystery ends up being a sham. You know, I've studied the Bible for a long time, and every time I've looked for some additional truth, some little secret, the Bible keeps bringing me back to this. It's simple but true that Jesus lived and died and rose again to save us from our sins because of God's great love for us. That's the mystery that is working itself out in our lives. The mystery was revolutionary at the time of Paul that this simple mystery was available to the world. That was the new thing, that it wasn't just for the Jews, but for Gentiles as well. Today, I think maybe the, the thing that we struggle with in modern society is the simplicity of that mystery, rather than the universality of it. It seems like we always want to know more. We want to look for something else. Modern society lives on what is new. I think that's why the news is so popular right now, because we're always looking for something new. We look for something new instead of something that is true. But this simple gospel is all the mystery that we need. Harry Ironside, pastor of Moody Church some hundred years ago, said this in a sermon, the blessed holy word of God answers every one of these questions, but the modern mind turns away from it all and says, no, I'd rather go on questioning, go on in uncertainty than to face the problem of Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ is not a problem. He is the solution to every problem for life, for death, and for eternity. It's been true of the modern mind at least a hundred years and continues now, even more so today, I think. 
but the completeness that we all seek, the maturity that Paul wants to present these people in is found in the mystery, the simple mystery of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. So don't search for it anywhere else. Paul continues in 2.2, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in the body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Paul is concerned for this new church that they keep holding on to the simple mystery of Christ. They knew Jesus. They understood him. He was praying that they would continue to hold on to him. Paul knew that there were others that were preaching a different gospel than this simple mystery. They were preaching with fine-sounding arguments. The Net Bible translates it as arguments that sound reasonable. One of the most deceptive traits of false gospels is that they sound reasonable. They promise reconciliation to God in some other way, and by some other means than Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, something different than Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't it reasonable, they would say, that if God is holy and he demands holiness, that he would want us to demonstrate holiness by keeping the law? Seems reasonable. But it is not the gospel. So they're going to preach to you that you must have Jesus plus everything that the law requires what you should eat, what you should taste, what you should touch, how you should worship in a particular way. It seems reasonable, but it's Jesus plus something, and that's not the gospel. That is not Christ in you, hope of glory. Or it might seem reasonable that if we're the heir of all things, then God would want us to have material wealth right now. In fact, that God blesses people financially who really, really believe him, that sounds reasonable. So they preach that you must believe them and open your wallet to them. And as you sow, then you'll reap. And so they'll preach a gospel of prosperity. But that's not the real gospel. That's not the hope of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or it might seem reasonable that if God is holy, that he should want to use all power to make the world holy, especially political power. It seems reasonable. So they tell us to trust in leaders that will be a means to the end, no matter the cost, and sell their souls for political power. Seems reasonable, but it's not the gospel. Or it might seem reasonable that if, if God wants to reconcile the world, he wouldn't be so narrow as to demand that everyone must understand a, a, an ancient prophet as the Messiah. God can do anything. So he must save everyone. Seems reasonable. So they preach a universalism that has no room for actual personal faith. That is not the gospel. There are all kinds of false gospels. We could pick through all of them. These mysteries that people keep bringing up ways for you to be reconciled to God without the cross of Christ. Paul 
prays that they will not be caught in that. There are all kinds of false gospels. I think they all seem reasonable because they kind of scratch where we itch, right? They're all something that we really desire. Deep down, we want financial prosperity or political power or uh, some control over our destiny or even something that seems right. We want to have our friends and neighbors not go to hell. But they're not the gospel because they don't preach Jesus Christ, the hope of glory in you. They're not the gospel that Paul was a servant of. They're not centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ who dwells in you. Any message of reconciliation with God that does not put Christ right in the center, in the crux of the whole conversation, is a false gospel that will lead you away only from um, the ways that it advertises itself. So be on guard. Be on guard against these false gospels that you'll hear on YouTube or in popular books or blogs that you'll hear in podcasts that say, this is the mystery that you need to hear. Be on guard. Things that sound Christian but are far from it, that demand your allegiance to anything else but God. I see so many Christians swept up in political fear-mongering or easy money schemes or the lie that you are what you own or who you know. So many Christians that are reaching for other mysteries. Those mysteries of this world don't encourage our hearts and unite us in love, which Paul is praying for here. They tear us apart and divide us into camps. So watch out for those Christians. Do not be tempted by the mysteries that promise some sort of reconciliation to God that is not the cross. I know that there are some here today that have not yet grasped this mystery of Christ. Either they're listening online or they're here at the church. Maybe you've come to church for a long time, but you've never grasped this mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. My hope for you is that today you will understand this faith, this simple truth that binds us together, encourages us to love and good deeds. Simply knowing that Jesus lived and died and rose again to save you from your sin. And simply believing that and nothing else makes you reconciled to God. Christ holds out his arms of hope to you and all who will simply believe in him. Paul's goal in this letter to the Colossians is the same as mine, is that you will be encouraged to hold on to this mystery, and search for no other. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Christ in us. That is our hope. That is the hope that we hold on to. That the whole world can be reconciled to Jesus, it can be reconciled to God through Jesus and His death on the cross by simply believing this truth and holding on to it and nothing else. God, I pray for my friends here today that they would not try to find fulfillment in some other gospel, some other message, some other mystery that uh, entices them. That they would hold firmly to the truth of the gospel. These other mysteries sound reasonable, 
but they are false. And I pray, God, that you would protect my friends here today from those. For those that don't know you, I pray that they would come to know you, that they would hear this message of the gospel and, um, and be changed. Thank you for this great mystery that you've given us, uh, Christ in us. May we be blessed today. Amen.